This is Mornings with Simi. Small businesses can now apply for rent relief from the federal government. But now that we've been going through this for months and actually more businesses are focused on opening up, is that too little too late? We wanted to talk more about that this morning. Dan Kelly joins us now, President and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Businesses. Dan, thanks for being here. Happy to be with you. Now, I'm sure you've talked to many of your members about this. What are they saying about that rent relief? Well, look, many are were very excited when the government announced the plan at the beginning because it sounded like it was going to be significant rent relief. 75% of your rent would be covered. Uh, you wouldn't have to pay if your business had had a 70% drop in gross sales. Uh, that was good news for many of them That uh, because right now, those businesses that have been shuttered for, for a couple of months have had to eat the entire cost of their rent, 100% for a business they've not been able to open. So the the rent subsidy sounded good. Unfortunately, what's happened is the uh, the, the program is designed in such a way that the, the small business can't even apply for it. It's the landlord that actually has to go and apply to CMHC starting today for a loan in order to provide the rent relief. And then governments will pick up apparently 50% of the cost of the subsidy to the tenant, and then the, uh, the landlord is expected to eat 25%. Our data shows that most landlords have said, no, they're not going to do it. And that's the problem. If In that case, the small business gets no support, even though they're, they're eligible. Now, what has your data also told you, though, about how cooperative landlords have been? Because I can increasingly see stories from businesses that say they're having problems because landlords aren't willing to even budge and help them. It is a real mixed bag. There, are, Look, there are lots of great landlords out there, and it's really easy to characterize landlords as cartoon villains here, and so I'm, I'm going to work hard not to do that. Um, they, we've, heard from, we've heard from several that <clears throat> even in advance of the subsidy, the, government, the uh, landlord had, provi- had provided some sort of deferral of their rent to pay it over installments over time, uh, and that was certainly positive news. Some have actually even lowered their rent on their own, which, is gr- which was gratefully received. And another chunk are planning to use this subsidy, but those are the minority. Uh, the majority of landlords have said, look, I've got bills to pay. I can't afford to just eat this. There are lots of small businesses that are also landlords. The, the dry cleaner that owns a couple of extra bays in the strip mall in which uh, he or she is a resident and, and then rents that out as, a, as an alternative revenue source. And so for some of them, it is really challenging right. to see their rent drop by 25%. Is that the tricky part, though, as you just mentioned, that we're talking about these groups as though they're two completely separate things when sometimes they're one and the same? There's absolutely the case. And landlords and tenants, even if they're not related, uh, they need to uh, they need to work together. I think there's going to be a lot of landlords that are they're going to unfortunately miss out on this opportunity to keep their tenants afloat and end up, and end up pushing their tenants into bankruptcy with not too many business owners coming in behind them. Look, there are over half of business owners that have said that they've missed their May rent and and not and they don't have the money to pay their June rent. This subsidy was supposed to be backdated to help cover April, May, and June rent. But it's not working. So what we've said to governments is if they don't see a huge take-up of this secret program, as it's known, uh, if they don't see landlords applying for it in large numbers, they need to switch gears fast. And what we're suggesting is that they get the 50% support from government directly to the tenant. And then the tenant and landlord can work this out on their own. And, and so that's what we're recommending. We've also asked provinces, including British Columbia's government, to ban commercial evictions. If you can believe it, there are some small businesses that have not been able to pay their rent simply because they've been closed down during the COVID period and their landlord's kicking them out because yeah. they haven't paid their bills. And that seems really inappropriate at this time. It seems incredibly inappropriate. And also, where do these landlords think that other tenants are going to show up from? You know, uh, look, there are some tenants that landlords have wanted to get out for a while. Perhaps they're looking to build a condo and they've got a lease uh, with a tenant that they're not able to, uh, to, to do the conversion. Uh, but yeah, I, I think in a couple of years' time, they're gonna, we're going to see a hollowing out of the business community like we have not seen before, and landlords will say, what the heck happened? So hopefully, uh, more tenants will be motivated to pick up this program. But look, it was really poorly designed. It, it depended, you know, to get the subsidy to the tenant shouldn't depend on whether the landlord chooses to participate or not. And that's, that was the mistake that the federal and the provincial governments made at the beginning. I'm hoping that I'm wrong and that landlords are going to sign up in huge numbers. I'm worried that they won't. 
and in which case the small business is going to be very, very vulnerable to bankruptcy. This was an important program. The two biggest expenses for a small business typically mm-hmm. are, A, their wage bills, and secondly, their rent. Uh, the wage bills have been covered to a degree by the wage subsidy, but this one's just not working. All right, Dan, thanks very much for this. Anytime. This is Mornings with Simi. It does seem a bit odd to celebrate something like National Tourism Week in light of everything that's going on out there. But the truth is, we need to think about this. We need to think about Canadian tourism and how it's going to be promoted moving forward. Well, to talk more about those immense challenges, we're joined now by Charlotte Bell, President and CEO at the Tourism Industry Association of Canada. Charlotte, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. This must be an incredibly challenging time for you right now. Well, it certainly is. Uh, Tourism Week is usually a time of celebration where we all come together as an industry and uh, and really uh, embrace the year that has passed and uh, where we ring in the high season, which begins now, of course, um, and this year, as we all know, things are looking very, very different than what they normally are. Right. Let's talk about before this actually happened, What? how was tourism shaping up in the country? Tourism was doing great. We had another record year uh, last year. And in fact, the last four years have been uh, just, a, just a growth period um, that has been uh, just tremendous for the industry. And we've been, of course, you know, last year, we welcomed 21.1 million international visitors, uh, which was, again, a record-breaking year from the previous year. So things were going very smoothly, very well. We were all getting ready for the high season, and um, and everyone was quite excited about that. So how do you retool? And this happened. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> how do you retool that message now, Charlotte? I know that, that you know, it's not just you. It's every major tourist destination in the world is facing this. What kind of message do you think we're going to need to hear moving forward? Well, I think one of our, our top priorities, of course, well, for the time being, we've been working very, very hard um, on the rescue phase um, and, and ensuring that government programs are providing support for tourism businesses across the country. And so, you know, we've, we've shifted our focus on this. We are now um, pivoting towards recovery, um, of course, and, um, and I think that one of the major things that, that we need right now is to ensure that tourism businesses have the liquidity that they need so that they can, so they can um, stay in business and be able to recover um, but we're also dealing with border closures, provinces that have different measures in place um, from place to place. So we are grappling with that. Um, and, and I think one of the most important messages really for Canadians is that we're working very hard to make sure that, um, that we're providing confidence um, and that when the time is right, uh, that they're going to feel safe and excited about uh, about discovering or rediscovering their favorite places or new places that they haven't visited yet um, across the country. Can the industry survive with foc- with a focus on domestic tourism? Then, domestic tourism is very important. You know, this is a hundred and two billion dollar industry before this happened, um, and uh, about eighty percent of those revenues are generated through domestic tourism that said the the real area of growth has been international tourism and there are a number of businesses that depend almost solely or to a very large extent on uh, on international tourists so it is going to have a huge impact the longer the borders stay closed um, and the longer this virus um, is with us now we also know and we are hearing that the virus may be with us for quite some time. So I think that um, it's incumbent on us to work with government um, and make sure that we figure out how we're going to live with this 
um, for the foreseeable future. Where do you think the biggest impact is, Charlotte? I know that in BC in particular, there's a lot of very kind of high-end luxury, mm-hmm. in particular, it's kind of like wilderness lodges that locals, like, we can't afford to go there, but it was really designed mm-hmm. for those international tourists. How do How do places like that survive? Well, it's going to be, it is very, very challenging for those types of businesses. There's no question about it. Um, and I think, you know, one of, one of our, our main asks of government is, is to put programs in place that provide liquidity. Um, you know, we've asked for the BCAP program to be 100% backed by the Canadian government um, and that there be a forgivable portion of those loans so that uh, those types of businesses can actually uh, uh, be able to cover their fixed costs until uh, such time as they can start business again. So that is certainly, um, it's, it's, it's a huge challenge. There's no question about it. And we continue to advocate on their behalf and, of course, ask for uh, better liquidity measures uh, mm-hmm. from government. Is tourism also grappling with kind of what we see other businesses having to deal with? And that is, you know, if you're going to have guests back in the next little while, you're going to have to take some measures to let those people know that they're safe. I know that Las Vegas is really going through this right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we know that the, the hotels have just released um, guidelines for their stay safe program. Uh, the airlines have put some very rigorous and, and the airports also have put rigorous measures in place. And we are working with our stakeholders. There are a number of resources that are out there. But as part of a recovery package uh, that we're hoping to be able to put in place with government, um, I think there's going to be a need for either tax credits or funding uh, that is going to help those businesses put those measures in place and be able to cover some of those costs. But um, this is a top priority for the industry. We know that um, that the the safety of Canadians and international travelers is paramount, and uh, and that's going to continue to be a top priority for the industry as a whole. All right, Charlotte, thank you. Thank you Charlotte, for having me. Charlotte Bell, President and CEO of the Tourism Industry Association of Canada. Uh, that is a huge challenge. Now, if you've ever gone to a place like Las Vegas, which I have several times, uh, I've been getting emails, maybe you have too, from different places that you have ever stayed, any hotel that you've pretty much ever stayed at where they had your info, where they had your email address, I have been getting emails from those hotels telling me about what that they're putting into place in order to make people feel safer about traveling there. And that is a huge challenge for tourism right now is how do you tell people that, yes, it's okay to come to our hotel, our lodge, or here's what we're doing to keep you safe? That is a huge challenge for tourism right now. And again, as I was saying to Charlotte as well, what about all those places that cater to mainly just international tourists who can spend the big bucks and come here and stay at some of these very expensive places? How do places like that survive? Because they are vital to the economies of these smaller places in our province as well. And also, when it comes to spending your money, where do you want to spend that? Like, are you ready to start traveling again? Or are you thinking, I'm probably going to be sticking closer to home for the next little while? You can email me, simi at cknw.com. And a reminder, camping reservations open today. You want to talk about something that is kind of cost efficient, also involves social distancing, uh, just kind of hits all the right notes for people right now. Well, that is camping and camping reservations are going to be incredibly competitive uh, opening at, I think, seven o'clock this morning. So in about 45 minutes time or so. And remember, most provincial campgrounds are going to reopen on June the 1st and they are reserved for BC residents this summer. I know that's welcome news to a lot of you out there. This is Mornings with Simi. Time for us to join Nikki Reitmeyer, and she's got some questions for us on this Monday morning. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, I'm just wondering if you, you went out this weekend. This was kind of the first full yeah. weekend that bars, restaurants, shops were all open. Did you get a chance to go out for, for lunch or for dinner this weekend? Uh, well, yes and no. So I went for my haircut, which was great. 
desperately right, needed. Yeah. Really different salon situation. Some people, it's going to take some getting used to, but that's fine, right? I was just happy to see all that and get my hair cut. But I also found an excuse to not go out this weekend. <laughs> and that is, I was reading Alexandra Gill's article in the Globe and Mail newspaper. She's their food critic here on the West Coast. And she did uh, a report about all of the different restaurants that are now giving send, selling meal kits, right? So you can make your food at home. It's not the actual meal. They're not sending you the takeout meal. It's the meal kit. And she had a list of all the great ones. And I thought, well, this is a great idea. So I ordered a whole bunch of them. And I spent yesterday trying them out, which is actually more of a reason to not now go out into public. So yes and no, I found more of a reason to stay home. Uh, Still supporting local restaurants one way or the other. So I think that's kind of a cool idea. Absolutely. And I want to give a shout out to Top Table, the company that owns a whole bunch of different restaurants like Araxi, Leah's Steakhouse in Yaletown. So Top Table did a great job with the meal kits. Loved it, loved it, loved it. You can check their website, toptable.ca. Also, Simi, let me say this is very refreshing because uh, typically, well, here on the the former John McComb show, we used to never really pay attention to each other getting haircuts and so forth. So we've all become very bad at complimenting well, each other when a haircut happens because you were kind of it was kind of a bunch of dudes in the morning. Well, but listen, since- it, I'm not. I'm only working with one person in you know in person here, Greg Shaw, and he didn't notice my haircut this morning. So you know. Well, this is what I'm saying. This is kind of a relief to me that I'm not seeing you in person right now because. To be honest, I probably also would not have noticed that you got your hair done. So I will tell you from afar, Simi, your hair, it looks great. Did you get it done this weekend? I got three inches cut off. And listen, if my 20-year-old son could notice that I got my hair cut, I'm thinking the people that I, because like he's clueless, but I'm thinking the people that I work with could notice maybe that I got my hair cut. Well, I'm, I'm certainly glad that you're, you're here in the mornings. It's always a pleasure working with you. And you're slowly training us to be more sensitive oh, to so. the little things. Noticing when people get their hair cut in the office. <laughs> we'll see so about forth. that. We'll see about that. Now, so I have had a reason to stay in, but I know lots of other people did not, Nikki. This was an issue right across the country, it sounds like. Yeah, I mean, uh, in Ontario, they did it kind of the wrong way. So, you know, if you went out this weekend and you went to a bar or to a restaurant, you know, I, I definitely did. And, and we can maybe chat a little bit about kind of what that looked like. Uh, it was it was fine. It, you know, most bars and restaurants were taking certain measures. But in Ontario, on kind of the far end of the spectrum, I mean, a reminder there that you're not allowed to gather in groups of more than five people who aren't inside your direct family. And they had thousands of people. Oh, yeah. And it was mostly young people gathering in the city park and partying. They were listening to music. They were drinking. They're sitting out in the sunshine. People described it as looking like a music festival. And Toronto Mayor John Tory said he was so upset that he actually went down to the park to see it for himself. I was stunned. Uh, I was deeply disappointed to the point where I went over to the park to talk to people and say, why are you doing this? Uh, did you not hear the news or did we uh, you know, achieve less than clarity in what the uh, directions were in terms of groups of five or less and uh, physical distancing of two meters? And it seems more that people just decided this didn't really apply to them, that there was no risk to them, uh, and they didn't consider that there was a risk to everybody else. And they went about doing what they did, which is just deeply disappointing, and it's got to change. It's got to be better today. Interesting to note as well, Nikki. So I saw the pictures of Mayor John Tory at Trinity Bellwoods Park and himself. He also got a lot of criticism because he didn't properly wear his mask. He had pulled it down, so he wasn't, didn't even have his mask on his face. Yeah, he did a lot of apologizing yeah. on Sunday, saying, okay, well, maybe I too should have been following procedures a little bit better. I mean, it was crazy, though, what was happening down there. Toronto Police Chief Mark Saunders, so he responded to some criticism, too, that police, why weren't you down there handing out tickets if people were violating all these social distancing rules? And he said, look, we did hand out tickets, just not so much for the social distancing problem. A lot of complaints were coming in from the the residents, Uh, people urinating, uh, people defecating uh, on their properties. And so when you've got uh, an elderly woman opening the door and seeing someone defecating, um, it's quite bothersome. So we issued a a, a number of tickets for that type of public disorder. Oh, come on, people. What is going on out there, Nikki? Have we just all forgotten our etiquette and social graces? Imagine the self-restraint that it takes to describe someone defecating on someone else's front door as bothersome it was uh bothersome for this individual to see that no that's horrendous that's absolutely horrible so if you saw people out and about this weekend in vancouver 
remember, it was not nearly as bad as what they were dealing with in Ontario. I mean, that is insanity. It is. And their numbers remain stubbornly high in Ontario, too. They're actually seeing an increase in cases they think was a result of people not listening to the rules for Mother's Day. You know, and it's that kind of attitude, though, that I think is going to keep cases high in that province. And I think, you know, in BC, we've had Mm -hmm. our circumstances where the parks have been busy or the beaches have been busy, but people here generally seem to get it. And thank goodness we've seen cases that reflect that with bars and restaurants and shops reopening this weekend. I hope that a week from now, we continue to see those low numbers, meaning that we can continue to move forward. Knockwood, I hope so too. Nikki, thank you. Thanks, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. We are concerned uh, with the situation in Hong Kong. Uh, We have uh, 300,000 Canadians who live in Hong Kong, uh, and that's uh, one of the reasons why uh, we want to ensure that the one country, two systems uh, approach continues for Hong Kong. That is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau uh, responding to a question about what we have seen unfolding in Hong Kong over the last week or so. Uh, Over the weekend, we saw pro-democracy supporters in Hong Kong facing water cannons. Uh, Meanwhile, here at home, a definite impact as well, where a couple of hundred people gathered at the Chinese consulate in Vancouver yesterday to protest that. To talk more about what is going on, Mabel Tung joins us now, chair of the Vancouver Society in support of democratic movement and one of the organizers of that protest yesterday. Mabel, thank you for being here. Well, thank you for having me. Now, what were the big concerns that you heard from people yesterday at the protest? Why were people there? I I think most of the people kind of really are angry about what's going on um, because uh, the China Parliament, the National People's Congress, has announced that a new national security law to Hong Kong will be on the agenda at its coming parliament meeting without any discussion with Hong Kong legislature. Um, but the most concern about the the, uh, the, the the detail of this law, because this law shall enact laws on its own to prohibit any act of treason, secession, sedition, subversion against the central people's government, or, or any action of crime or stealing state secret, and to prohibit foreign political organizations or bodies from conducting political activities in the region and to prohibit uh, political organization or bodies of the region from establish ties with foreign political organization or bodies. So it, this, this law really, really affecting the human rights movement in Hong Kong. So that is something, like, they unilaterally do this then. Is that is that not a direct violation, though, of the agreement that they made in 1997 to have Hong Kong handed over to China? Definitely, because um, after this law's passed, they will uh, uh, um, uh, starting a, 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 a department uh, controlled by the, uh, China, uh, the Chinese government in Hong Kong to uh, oversee the security uh, uh, security uh, issues. So, so that means um, they uh, destroyed the uh, one country, two systems um, that was established in the Sino-British uh, Declaration that issued in uh, 1984. And definitely that will override any uh, 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 government in Hong Kong. So this will really, um, uh, this law really affecting uh, a lot of uh, people, right. the citizens in Hong Kong as well. And also the, uh, it will end Hong Kong as a global financial city because uh, to put one country to system into only one country, one system. What what kind of reaction has there been? I know that um, you know Australia, Canada, and the United Kingdom put out a joint statement together on this. United States has said they're not happy about this, but are other countries doing enough? Do you think to tell no. China they're not happy? No, I think we have to make a better, strong stand together against China and. Uh, because it just matter to everybody. Um, it, it, as you, you know that, you know, because um, this um, Hong Kong is not just uh, another city. It is a global city that everybody uh, uh, has some interest in the Hong Kong, like uh, the, the uh, um, investment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and our export to China is under 4% in our total export. 
but we have 300,000 people, uh, 300,000 Canadian in Hong Kong. And Hong Kong is a global financial center. The stock exchange of Hong Kong is Asia's third largest internal market um, uh, capitalization behind the Tokyo Stock Exchange and the- Shanghai Stock Exchange. So, so all of this is, is a common interest for all um, the people that right. invest in Hong Kong. So it, it's kind of important that everybody can um, united together to stand up for their, for their action. What would you like to see other countries do then? I think um, we, we probably will be... Uh, we, we probably have to make a, a stronger statement and, and also and to try to um, make sure that China respects the Sino-British Joint Declarations uh, to promise autonomy under one country to system. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also if um, a lot of other countries already done uh, done so. I think they they uh, same as Canada. We have a ministry act, and then uh, we can unite it with all the countries with the same uh, universal value as Canada. Involved uh, uh, in work right. the ministry act to uh, to restrict uh, entry of individual and uh, corporation that involved with any human rights violation and freeze their financial asset. Interesting, Mabel. Thank you very much for your time. Okay, thank you. That's Mabel Tung, chair of the Vancouver Society in support of democratic movement. A couple of hundred people gathering in Vancouver yesterday at the Chinese consulate to protest what the Chinese government is doing right now in terms of um, imposing laws on Hong Kong, something that we're going to be hearing a lot more about. This is Mornings with Simi. You know, we were talking about how camping reservations were starting at 7 o'clock this morning for BC residents only. That was something I'm sure a lot of people had marked on their calendar. Uh, clearly, can't even get on the website. Got an email from Gary just a few minutes ago saying, Simi, the BC Parks website crashed at 7 a.m. Sure enough, I can't get on it. I'm trying. bcparks.ca, no luck out there. Uh, that just gives you an idea, I think, of the demand uh, that people have to try to get a BC camping reservation sometime this summer. So I'll keep you posted on that. But right now, it doesn't seem like a lot of luck for people trying to get on there. If you've managed to do it, let me know, simi at cknw.com. And of course, going camping, heading back outdoors, doing something like that is part of the recovery process or getting out of the shutdown that we have had due to COVID-19. Well, researchers at UBC have actually kicked off a public consultation to find out more about what, what people think about all of these policies. And they're hoping that this will help shape decisions going forward. To talk more about this, we're joined by Kimberlyn McGrail the Associate Professor in the School of Population and Public Health and the Center for Health Services and Policy Research at UBC. Kimberlyn, thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. So tell me about this work that you are doing now. What is it that you're looking at? So we are conducting what's called a public deliberation or a series of public deliberations with the intent of providing um, policy recommendations that decision makers can consider when they're thinking about what you were describing, how we move out of the severe lockdown that we've been in and how we manage everything until there's such time um, that the virus can be controlled in some way, that we have a treatment and or a vaccine. Right. And how do you do this research then? So a public deliberation, I, um, I would distinguish it from a survey or even a focus group in the sense that we're not asking for people's um, top of mind reactions to things. With a public deliberation, there's usually a little bit of background um, reading to do um, that we prepare. So it's a a balanced view of different kinds of issues. We talk about issues where there's trade-offs, where there's really ultimately values-based decisions that need to be made, um, where science cannot give us all the information we need. Because, of course, if there's evidence um, available, then we can leave decision makers to um, make those decisions. Um, but when there's values involved and trade-offs that the public has to live with, it's it's an impor- important time for the public to have a, a way to weigh in it as well. And deliberations are a way of helping people talk to each other and figuring out how we can live with each other def- despite the fact that we are, are not always going to agree and there's a, a lot of right. diversity in our population. Are you going to be then studying kind of which messages work, what people listen to, what they didn't listen to? Um, the, the deliberation, I would say, is less about how to perfect messaging and more about actually saying what the public would be willing to accept or what they would find trustworthy or what they would be willing to trust. So, for example, in the case of contact tracing apps or other kinds of, of technology apps, which is one of the things that many governments are considering right now, 
there's lots of trade-offs of where the data are stored, uh, who might have access to data, who might tell you if you're a new case. All of those things can be mediated by apps or they can be done by people. Um, and one of the things that we want to know is what, what, would, what, would make, what would be the conditions that would make the public willing to use uh, technology like that in the context of the pandemic? Okay, so then how has that gone so far? What's the response been like to gathering the information? So we've just started. We've just um, finished recruiting for our very first pilot round. And one of the things we've learned is that it's um, pretty tricky to um, talk about, as you can see from this yeah. interview. It's it's a, not a, exactly an easy thing to describe to people in, in a short um, time frame. So recruiting, I think, is going to be a challenge. We've done these deliberations in person in the past and have had great success with them. The online reality is different, and we're trying to figure out how to get the methods right for this. It's so interesting, though, isn't it, Kimberlyn? Because I don't think people realize that we spend time studying this so that the next time this happens, we have a better idea of how we're going to approach it. It's not like it's not like this stuff just gets pulled out of the air when an emergency situation happens. That's correct. That's correct. But then there's all sorts of new things that come along, too. Like, for example, there's been social distancing under different pandemics in the past, but never at the scale that we are experiencing now. And there have been technologies that have been able to perhaps help with pandemics in the past, but the ability of those technologies is clearly very different now. So there's always something new to learn as well. So would you say that essentially what you're studying is public behavior? Um, we're, what we're really more trying to do is to um, give the government advice about the things that the public will be willing to accept that they'll find trustworthy and that they will then uh, follow. Will you be examining kind of the length of time? It, it seemed to me that we hit a point during this pandemic where people almost felt like they'd had enough, right? Yeah. Where they kind of maxed out on the message. Will you be looking at that as well? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really important aspect of everything because despite the fact that we're all really tired of this, the current circumstance, the, the risk of the virus is still exactly the same now as it was in January. It's just the fact that we've managed to get the cases down to a manageable level, but it's very likely that it's going to come back again. So I think part of the reason we have these discussions is to say, okay, if we need to ramp up um, controls again, what's going to be the right way to do that? How are, how are we going to um, uh, make the right policies so that we know that people will follow them and then we'll have better control over what's happening with the virus? Right. Okay. So will you be doing this? Is it just for BC? Or are you looking at it at other jurisdictions? Will there be anything to compare to? Well, we're hoping to be able to do a good portion of this across the country. We're waiting on the results of a grant to see how possible that is. But, of course, we're all facing many of the same issues across the country, so it would be great to have a Canadian perspective on this. Right, and how long do you think this work is going to take? We're planning on being able to um, run multiple cycles of this until, um, until there's a vaccine and or a treatment for the virus, because that's how long really we're going to be living with these uh, abnormal times. I was going to say, too, abnormal times. Does this give us an idea of how unique this situation is that we find ourselves in? Oh, uh, yes. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that most people don't need any reminder about how unique the situation is, but it really is. Right. And once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for researchers, would you say? Um, I mean, it's a, I wouldn't want to say to imply that anybody was hoping for an, an right. interesting social experiment like this, because uh, I think all of us are, I mean, we're all living under the same conditions yeah. here. But yes, we're, we, I think it's really, really important to find the silver linings and to find the opportunities that come with something that we really haven't been able, well, we, we're just not going to be able to prevent it. All right, Kimberlyn, thank you. Thank you so much. That's Kimberlyn McGrail, the Associate Professor in the School of Population and Public Health and the Center for Health Services and Policy Research at UBC. So they're doing a lot of work looking at essentially your appetite for all of this health-related COVID-19 information out there and essentially how you've been processing that information. This is Mornings with Simi. We know people are drinking beer and wine in all of our parks. So, uh, so creating some of those dry spaces seems like a good idea to me. Now, that was Vancouver City Councillor Christine Boyle. She spoke with us here on the show last week about the fact that there are two similar motions, one is hers, uh, to allow drinking in designated public areas that are going in front of Vancouver Council tomorrow. 
But it's just really a recommendation by Vancouver City Council at this point, if they vote in favor of this, because really we're talking about spaces here that are operated by the Vancouver Park Board. So are they actually thinking about doing this? Well, we thought we would talk more about that. So joining us now is John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. Now, how do you feel about Vancouver City Councillors weighing in on this over the last couple of weeks? Well, first, I'd like to give a little context. Uh, You know, we've been dealing with a lot at the Park Board recently. As you know, we were very quick and agile, and I think our staff did a great job of taking some steps to really keep people safe. And, and, uh, you know, a lot of our key facilities are closed. Right now, we're really working hard on getting those facilities back up and running. And each of them needs a safety plan. Each of them needs a, a program to move forward. And we're talking about senior centers and community centers, things that really hold people together and are really part of the Vancouver lifestyle. So I think our staff, first of all, have done a tremendous job. And the Park Board has, in fact, um, been working very hard on a, in, in, a, in a lot of areas. And, and I'm getting calls from, from parents saying, you know, when can my kids go back to the rinks and skate? When can our swim clubs begin training in our pools? Uh, we don't have lifeguards on the beaches because we were waiting for the protocols around uh, around how this is going to work in an area in in, in this COVID right uh, situation. So you're dealing so with all the normal stuff the park board would be dealing with, and now you've got Vancouver City Council saying, "Hey, you guys should be thinking about drinking in parks." Right, and we have been thinking about that. And in fact, unanimously supported a motion, uh, a number of motions actually, uh, going back over the last couple of years. In fact, uh, in December of 2018. The Park Board unanimously uh, voted to ask to get staff to conduct a, re- a feasibility study. We also have a pilot project that has been approved, and of course that's at the Cactus Club in English Bay where there is a, a patio, and, and that took quite a lot of licensing. Um, now things are moving quite quickly on the um, on licensing, and the province has made some even more recent changes. So where we've been moving in that direction, and uh, so. I don't think that there's there's a pushback from the park board. It's just a question of how we're going to do this, how we're going to do this safely, and making sure that we are are uh, are doing the right thing. And the other thing is, there are there's three motions up at council tomorrow around alcohol, whether it be in their public spaces, and then uh, Councillor Boyles is recommending the park board do something, which is a little bit unusual because we've already been work we've already been uh, right. we've been working on this. So. Um, there is some, you know, some some concerns people have as well around, uh, you know, where is it going to be? A lot of people want to be on the beach with their families, and they they maybe don't want to be in a in the you know in a situation where people are drinking. So there's right. going to have to be some designation of areas. I think there's going to have to be some some time in certain areas, certain parks where perhaps it's prohibited. So it's going to take, you know, it's quite a lot of work and. The Park Board is already dealing with an awful lot to just try and get us back to these social interactions yeah. that are so important. You know? So have any of the Vancouver City Councillors just reached out to any Park Board commissioners to say, hey, here's what we're thinking? Well, there may have been some, some conversations. Uh, I know that uh, they should, you know, uh, Councillor Boyle, I think when her motion first came out, um, I you know, I went on Twitter and said, you know, this is the... Uh, uh, the jurisdiction of the park board, and that was really only just to point that out. It's not we're not in a we're not in a in a turf war. There's certain things we do, and there's certain things the city does. In in one of these other city motions, it is talking about uh, city public square public spaces. So that would pro- perhaps be in front of the art gallery, those kinds of things. That is absolutely the jurisdiction of the city, and they should be they should be talking about that. But the park board has actually been ahead of this. <laughs> Uh, because we've passed various motions going back to, you know, getting these tests rolling. And, and um, we've also expanded, for instance, at, at say, Kids Fest last year. We had a much larger um, area for uh, alcohol cons- consumption and that sort of thing. So the park board is pretty progressive in moving uh, right. moving on these things. And, but I think for our staff, I mean, we, have, we haven't hired our temporary seasonal workers. We usually are hiring, you know, lifeguards and we're hiring people to cut grass and you know, we're seeing around the city where, um, you know, some of those things aren't being done because we just don't have the manpower at the moment. So, uh, Would you say to the public then, hey, listen, this is probably going to happen. We just need a little time to work this out. Well, I think that's exactly right. And, and because it was unanimous, it was across party lines of the park board that we supported this. And uh, uh, so what it's, I could tell you what it says. It considers uh, direct staff to conduct a feasibility study 
to allow the public uh, pilot project to allow the public to consume their own alcoholic beverages on select parking beaches, that percent potential sites uh, be considered for the pilot, that there a report back, but then look at the potential legal, logistical, societal enforcement, financial consideration. I mean, it's a big change. And um, I think we have to be careful. I, I support this change, and I think uh, the commissioners are, are looking forward to, to doing things positively. So I think there's pretty good alignment, but at the same time, I think we need to be careful and not overreact. We're in a we're in quite a crisis situation right now, and we really need to keep people safe. And do you think it's, everything that we've seen happen with the city dealing with this, do you feel a lot of that has probably fallen on the park board? People don't fully realize that. Well, that's right. I mean, we were the first to close, you know, we closed the beach. We took the logs off the beaches. That's huge. In my lifetime, I never remember that. And that, that, was, that was really to send a signal, hey, this is not just the same as it was before. And I think people have responded. You know, our staff have... We've taken our community center workers. You've seen them walking. We call them park champions. They're mm-hmm. encouraging social distancing. Our uh, our park rangers are, are doing a great job. And, you know, our general managers are just retiring in a week, and um, we're now in the process. We will be in the process of, of, of looking for uh, somebody for that position. So I think the park board has done a really pretty agile job under a very difficult situation and I think we continue to do that and I'm really proud of the work that our staff have done and that the commissioners have worked together in this in a very collaborative way we've been you know having a lot of phone calls a lot of meetings yeah and uh, it'll be great to see you know like senior centers I mean we would really like to see you know some movement there hopefully you know that's a very vulnerable group and, and even our staff we've been working on connecting with seniors even even when they can't go to the senior centers to make sure that these people have people have a social connection. So yeah. there's a lot of work being done, and um, I think everybody's working really hard, and um, I'm really proud of the work of the Park Board. Well, we'll see how it goes over the next little while. We'll be keeping an eye on it. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Have a great day. That's John Cooper, Vancouver Park Board Commissioner. Uh, yeah, it's great that Vancouver City Councilors are saying, we think there should be drinking in public parks, but the Park Board saying, we're going to get to that. But they are, as you heard him say, uh, dealing with an awful lot right now as well. So if you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, you've been hearing in the news this morning, or maybe you've even tried it for yourself. You know that the PNE is doing what they can to keep people and you know families engaged in the PNE, even though we're not having like an official fair this year. Uh, we had the drive-through mini donuts on the weekend, so popular that they actually ran out of donuts, so they've had to extend things. We wanted to talk to Shelley Frost about this, the PNE president and CEO, who joins us now. Good morning. Good morning, Cindy. How are you? Good, thank you. How are you guys? You've been surprised by the reaction that this whole mini donut thing got? Oh, you know what? It was overwhelming um, to see the level of support from people. And it did take us a little bit by surprise. We knew people love their mini donuts. But, um, you know, people just came in from everywhere. And the uh, the positivity and the, you know, just the, the overwhelming amount of support of wanting to come out, help us, you know, support the, the, the vendors was really great. One thing I did want to say, though, is mm-hmm. we, we, we didn't run out of donuts. We never ran out of donuts. It was just so busy that a lot of people couldn't get through. And so we wanted to make sure oh. and extend it to make sure that people had an opportunity to either use an unused ticket or get through if, they, if the lineups were too long and they couldn't get through over the last couple of days. Okay, so then today you're extending that. Yeah, exactly. So okay. today's the extra day. So how does that work then? How does people go, this sounds great, I want some mini donuts, but how does that work? Yeah, so they can just go online to ticketleader.ca or pne.ca and you buy one ticket in advance or you buy a ticket in advance and it's $20 for 24 mini donuts or you can buy a family pack of 48 mini donuts uh, for $35 and then you just come drive up to our gates. We'll scan your ticket. We'll send you through the, dr- the drive through and you'll get to say hello to the mini donut vendors and they'll hand you out in a health and safe, uh, healthy and safe way packages of mini donuts for you to gobble down in the car. That sounds so good. I wish I could do that, but it sounds like it's been crazy busy there. Now, I understand you're thinking about doing this as well for other great food that people love at the Peony. Yeah, you know, when we came up with the idea, it did occur to us that there might be <laughs> there might be an opportunity to do this for other food as well. We wanted to start with the iconic mini donut 
And uh, it was important for us to be able to help support the vendors that work with us uh, during the fair. And, I mean, their businesses have been devastated as well. And so any opportunity that we have to help bring them out, bring people to them, uh, and keep people engaged with some of their fair favorites and give them a little, just a little touch of the summer things that they loved was really important to us. So um, we're working through a list of items. I think every 10th car was yelling out their window, let's do this, let's try that. (laughs) So it was really great. We got lots of feedback this weekend and there's definitely lots of interest of uh some trying out some different food items all right well let's what's coming up next and can we say pierogies because come on we've got to have pierogies <laughs> pierogies is on the list for sure there's uh, a lot of people yelling out for ribs oh. uh you know <laughs> corn related items whether it's corn dogs or roasted corn, corn dogs uh, <laughs> you know a little a little bit of everything P- poutine so i think uh i think there'll be lots of hopefully lots of opportunities for people to come out and enjoy their favorites All right, I look forward to that. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. A lot of questions this morning about what is going on between the BC Green Party and its former leader and member, Andrew Weaver. Started with a social media post about the idea of a four-day work week. That was posted by BC Green MLA, Sonia Fersenow. Prompted quite the response from former leader, Andrew Weaver, who called the idea kooky. And then, extrapolating on that, he went on to say this. This was his tweet. My former colleagues, Adam Olson and Sonia Furstenau, were afraid to stand up to the BC NDP with respect to the LNG development. He says, I was ready to go to election, but in my opinion, they were more interested in re-election than they were about standing up for BC Green principles. So he's going to be talking about this coming up on the Mike Smith Show. Like, why is he speaking out about this now? But we wanted to get some reaction to this. Joining us now is Adam Olson, one of the BC Green MLAs, of course, representing Saanich North. Uh, good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Thanks for having me. What is going on here? What is this all about? Uh, no idea, frankly. Uh, the BC Green Caucus voted uh, 14 times against uh, the Income Tax Amendment Act, which was the... Uh, the basically the the competitiveness package or the the economic package that was given uh, by the BC NDP negotiated by the BC NDP government and supported by the BC Liberals in order to bring in uh, LNG Canada and uh, the BC Green Caucus uh, voted 14 times against uh, that legislation. In fact, um, interesting, we we all used every single opportunity at every single vote uh, to oppose it uh, to speak very strongly against it. In fact, I'm on the record. Um, we're all on the record uh, speaking uh, for uh, at many opportunities. And uh, I don't know that there's been a piece of legislation that was voted on as many times as uh, as this was and, and how consistent uh, our entire caucus was uh, last year in, in opposing um, that uh, that project. So then when he says, I was ready to go to an election, but in my opinion, Adam Olson and Sonia First now are more interested in re-election. What do you think that means? What is he talking about? Um, uh, I mean, I think the, the BC Green Caucus has been exceptionally uh, clear about our position on LNG and the future that we believe that fossil fuels play, uh, or that fossil fuels play in our future, which is uh, far less than they do now, and, and that uh, we've been constantly encouraging uh, our BC NDP uh, uh, colleagues in the legislature to begin uh, the transition, uh, aggressively begin transitioning away from our dependence on fossil fuels from our economic perspective. So. From our perspective, we've been very, very uh, clear on this. We remain consistent. We, we continue to encourage the BC NDP to use uh, Clean BC, a, a program that, uh, that we've developed alongside them uh, in order to, uh, to, to guide the, uh, the principles of the economic recovery from uh, COVID-19. And we'll continue to uh, b- believe and, and, and continue to, uh, to put forward uh, options for a uh, low-carbon economy in the future. And Mr. Olson, I know a lot of people reading this and hearing about this will wonder, like, what happened to the relationship then between the three of you? Why is he seemingly uh, attacking you? Like, what happened to that relationship? Uh, look, um, MLA Weaver made the decision that he wasn't going to run again, and uh, and that the BC Greens then went into a, uh, a process to to elect a new leader, which we're still uh, working towards a resolution. Of course, the, the a COVID-19 pandemic has put uh, a ground to a halt a lot, and our leadership race was one of those. Um, he was going through uh, some very 
uh, difficult uh, family issues at the time that we've talked about, that we've uh, moved past. And uh, our focus is clearly on uh, making sure that uh, the economic recovery of uh, in British Columbia uh, reflects the values of British Columbians, which is that uh, we, we are moving towards uh, a low-carbon economy, uh, resilient, sustainable communities, and that's what uh, our caucus is focused on. Is it a bit hurtful, though, to hear? Does this distract, do you think, from the message? Well, I mean, I, I think that the focus, uh, what, what's most important is, is how we go forward from this. And, and from my perspective, we, we've spent a lot of work, a lot of time uh, working alongside our, our partners in government uh, to ensure that these principles are enshrined in the, the next steps forward and the decisions that we make uh, going ahead. You know, I think that uh, uh, when, I, when I look back and reflect on the consistency uh, the vociferous nature of my opposition to uh, the LNG Canada proposal, the, uh, the the project that needed the support of both the BC Liberals and the BC NDP, and and, and the BC NDP got Liberal support on that. Uh, I think we can reflect on that, uh, uh, you know, for decades to come. But the reality of it is, is that we've got in front of us a very, very substantive challenge. People are focused on how they're going to pay the bills and how they're going to put food in front of themselves and and their children right now. And that's exactly what the BC Greens are focused on. We're focused on tr- trying to create a world in which, um, in, in which uh, uh, people are able to, to, to make a life in British Columbia. And, and I think that uh, distracting us from that uh, really important work uh, is unnecessary. And, and uh, we'll just continue to, to, to put our head down and do the work that's necessary in order to ensure that British Columbians uh, can make the life that, uh, that they want in this province. Is that what you would say then to Andrew Weaver? I, I just say to all British Columbians that they, can, that they can be confident that the BC Greens are committed to looking uh, to the opportunities that, uh, that present themselves in the, in the coming weeks and months to ensure that, 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 uh, that we deal with the fact that 400,000 jobs have been lost in the month of April. That's devastating for our province. They realize that, uh, that that's just uh, one number amongst many provinces that have also lost a huge number of jobs. We are facing an economic crisis that we've uh, never seen before. To, to have us, uh, uh, to have us uh, distracted from that uh, is unfortunate, but you know, this is the business we're in. We just put our head down and just continue uh, to invest our time in trying to have uh, the best outcomes for British Columbians. And Mr. Olson, just so we're clear, then you are proud of the BC Green record when it comes to dealing with the LNG and the NDP government? Well, I think that uh, when you take a look back at that, uh, at that uh, bill that, that was in front, the, uh, the, uh, the Income Tax Amendment Act, uh, which, which was basically the, the corporate welfare package for uh, LNG Canada to, to make their final investment decision, it's a uh, a more uh, a more rich uh, by order uh, offer by orders of magnitude than even the BC Liberals uh, were willing to offer, and the fact that the BC Liberals and the BC NDP. I mean, I think it's important to remember that there's three uh, Green MLAs, and that there are uh, 84 other MLAs in the legislature. And the the NDP uh, found a partner in the in the BC Liberals, and they decided to proceed with that legislation. and And we voted, and we uh, uh, sought 14 votes on that legislation. And like I said, there's not been a piece of legislation that has required so much debate and so many votes, standing votes on the record. And in fact, we made sure that we called those votes to be on the record so that British Columbians were clear about our opposition to this. So I'm Mm -hmm. very proud of our record. I'm very proud of of how we handled this. And I'm very proud of the fact that uh, looking back over the last three years, that uh, we have, through the Confidence and Supply Agreement, uh, advanced um, a, a very, very a wide-ranging package of uh, policy initiatives uh, that I think British Columbians are proud of and that, uh, mm-hmm. that help us get uh, British Columbia on track. Mr. Olson, thank you for your time this morning. Thanks for yours, and have a great day. You too. That's Adam Olson, BC Green MLA, representing Saanich North, responding to what the former leader and former member of the Green Party, Andrew Weaver, has been saying on social media.